Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Talent Playbook Podcast. My name is Jason Ferrara. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Outmatch and your host for this podcast. Our podcast focuses on strategies for transforming your world of work. During each podcast, we'll highlight someone who's transformed their organization or industry in a significant way. Today's guest is Greg Moran. He's the CEO of Outmatch, which means, number one, he's my boss. Uh, number two, he is my uh, nutrition coach for, uh, for workouts. So I didn't know if you knew that, but you do That's good to serve know. in that capacity for me as well. Didn't know I was that important, but all right, I'm glad to hear it. Your life is in my hands. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. During our time today, Greg, I wanted to go through a number of questions. They're going to range from the personal to the professional. Uh, but before we get into more specifics about that, go ahead and describe Outmatch. Not every listener is going to understand who we are and what sure. we do. Sure, yeah. Um, it, Outmatch is basically provides predictive analytics, uh, so data that you want about uh, about candidates um, that you're hiring. We work with, uh, you know, been really fortunate to work with some really large companies and well-known, some of the best brands in the world, companies like uh, American Airlines and Hyatt Hotels and Subway Restaurants and um, a lot of others to really help them identify high potential candidates out of large uh, talent pools, and be able to screen them more effectively and uh, and develop them over the long-term relationship that that person, once they come on with that company, is going to have with the organization. Cool. Good. Thanks. So I, I've already said that you're the CEO of Outmatch, but you know, describe for me a little bit about that job and how long you've been doing the job. Uh, so I've been the CEO of Outmatch for about uh, about just over two years now. Um, we, uh, Outmatches actually, uh, was formed as a merger of two companies, um, company that I founded way back in, seems like an eternity ago, back in 2009, uh, called checked.com and a company here where we're sitting today in Dallas, uh, called assess system. So we, um, got together with a, a private equity firm out in Palo Alto who, uh, who, uh, called Trident Capital, who, um, helped us uh, bring the organizations together. We did that back in January of 2015. So been the CEO of Outmatch ever since then. Um, and I've also uh, was the CEO of the predecessor company, Checked.com, back you know from 2009 or something. And that was uh, pretty much from the stage of a startup. And was that your first time as a CEO? No. Checked uh, so Checked was actually my third startup. Um, I had uh, two prior. Uh, one way back in uh 19 that we started in 1997 um called uh called pinnacle technology solutions it was a uh executive search and um staffing uh company focused on primarily we placed um mostly it related talent for uh for uh internet startups at the time and uh and and for those of you who or listening, they've been around for a little while from back to Y2K. The, the, the end of the world, right? Yeah, the end of the world, right. So we were placing uh, the developers on staff at our clients to basically try to remediate Y2K problems. So uh, between that and, you know, the internet bubble, it was a great time. It was, uh, it was a great business in 97 and 98, 99, 2000. Uh, but the, the problem was with the Y2K bubble, the world didn't end, uh, but right. all of our contracts did. Right. So <laughs> it ended for us, but not right. for everybody else. Uh, so that was my first foray into a CEO. And I had a um, interim. Uh, and then I had a I was CEO of another company in between there. Got it. So uh, there's a question I was going to ask later, but it seems it seems appropriate to ask now. So, you know what what has changed 
not, not only in business in general, but for you as a CEO, since starting a business in 1997 and, and now working in, in a business as a CEO in 2017, like what are some of the big changes you've seen? Um, you know, I think if I look at it from the lens of a startup entrepreneur, um, it's easier than ever in a lot of ways to start a business today, and uh, which I think is a great thing. And I think that uh, has changed the way as a CEO of a more mature company today, um, we have to look at the world, right? Because we have competitors coming in that, you know, six months ago, they didn't exist. Um, but because you can, you can really go from an idea and a PowerPoint to getting some technology commercialized today faster than you've ever been able to do, which makes, um, you know, a little bit larger organizations, and we're certainly by no means large, but, you know, a larger organization like ours, you, you really, it, you have to have a level of adaptability and flexibility um, in a different way than I think, you know, back in, say, 97, when we were uh, starting Pinnacle, you know, it was still hard. You still had to have physical offices. You still had to buy things like phone systems that you, um, you know, and you, you had a hardware computers were expensive and things like that when we first started that that uh that first company i spent twenty five hundred dollars which was my you know basically my entire life savings at the time um on a desktop pc and that was the cost of a desktop pc right so you ordered the big you know gateway pc from gateway right and it showed up in the big cow box and that was it right and um so i think that it, it is it's just it's really democratized the way that a company can uh start and the speed that a company can start which um, you know, which particularly in a, in a, in a, in a fairly dynamic market like HR tech, uh, like we're in, um, you know, it makes you, it makes you watch, uh, it makes companies better, I think, because you can, um, you know, just the, the pace at which other companies can come on the market. Why do you think the HR tech space is growing so quickly? You know, we talk about obviously technology is something you just mentioned, but, but what is it about the HR tech space? And we just finished a time at, at the HR tech expo and, and conference in, in Las Vegas this year, and it is still as vibrant as it's ever been there. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I, I've, I've seen that show grow, and from, you know, it, it's it's probably quintupled or more in size in just the past, you know, probably the 10 years or so that I've been, um, that I've been going to it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the way that companies are looking at their talent is different, and um, we've seen digitization and we've seen um, technology come into every other department of the company where where CEOs and C-level executives within an organization are starting to demand more now from HR, right? It was kind of that last bastion. If you think about, you know, the way the companies manage their supply chain software, right? And they, they there's there's incredible technology for that today. And Look at what Salesforce.com has done for, for the CRM space, right? Which is now kind of the system of record for Many companies, us included, right? So you right, right. you start to see the way that technology has infiltrated the really the deep operations of organizations and HR. Um, it's still behind, and and it was um, and it was horribly behind. But I think really it's kind of that last place where where CEOs and you know and, and the and executive teams are looking, starting to demand more than just managing benefits policies and administrative policies, but really saying, how do we do this better? How do we engage our talent on a different level than we have before? How do we hire so it's not 
a guessing game every time, right? But how do we apply real science to our hiring process? How do we apply real data, real analytics to help us identify the right person? How do we use those that data and those analytics to help us keep this person engaged, keep them happy, keep them performing at a high level, right? So I, I think it's it's just kind of the natural progression that organizations have gone through. And HR just happened to, I think, be really <laughs> the last place that it hit within uh, within most companies. Yeah. I mean, if I think about about my career specifically in marketing, that, that, ha- that shift had already happened in marketing. It was beginning at the start of my career, probably halfway through. It was, well, where, where's the data on which you make the decision to attend this this show send this send this piece of mail right, right at the beginning of my career to send the email at the right. at the later end of my career here yeah absolutely and then you know you and you look at you look at the importance that using data plays in in like you said in making marketing decisions you look at the importance of using data in say a sales organization right i mean it, you, you talk to most successful executives in marketing and data and they're going to be able to recite kind of every metric that are really critical for the success of their, you know, marketing campaigns or their pipeline conversion rates or things like that, right? In HR, for a long time, when you would ask an HR team, you know, what are the really the critical drivers of your success as an HR department or as a recruiting function or something, you were getting really nebulous things that um, – you know, things like I, I, I love to pick on like time to hire, right? I mean, it's a, it's an important metric because obviously you want that time to be. You need that time to be short, right? There's competition. You need to be short, right. But, it's a, but it doesn't really drive organizational performance in the way that really focusing in on, yes, I hired this person quickly, but I have no idea if they're working out or not. Right. And I, as the recruiter, may not be incentivized at all for the long term success of that person. So I think it's, you know, but it's different than what you've seen in most other departments. Right. Where certainly CFOs can recite the the key metrics for their business, VPs of sales, VPs of marketing. But that hasn't traditionally been the place uh, within HR. It's been far more kind of personal human contact side of it, which is obviously really important. But being able to really use that as a driver for organizational performance is, is really the direction that things are moving today. So now you get to recite the most three most key metrics for, for, for this organization. For Outmatch? Yeah, for Outmatch. What, do you, what are those three that you really look at to run the business? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the first thing is, you know, we are a, we are a SaaS or software as a service, um, sub- software subscription model, right? So... Uh, the biggest metric that we look at there for our performance is the growth of our recurring revenue. The beauty of a of a software as a service model is that our clients, um, you know, purchase annual or multi year license from licenses from us, and that becomes a very recurring and predictable revenue stream. So, from a from my position, that's what I watch all the time is that is that growth. I think, you know, the other thing obviously is we can't do this without um, without having a great team to execute. Um, so. You know, something around employee, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at employee satisfaction data. Now, we do that on a very frequent um, basis. So once a week, we have a, just to kind of give them a plug, we use a program called 15.5, which is uh, which is great technology for this. It's an engagement technology. Um, and uh, so that every week, every one of our employees, every one of our team members here are, are completing a survey about their own um 
their own feelings about their work that week, right? So and we, we watch the trending on that all the time to make sure that people are upbeat, they're, they're positive about what's going on, they're feeling good about the direction of the business. And if there's not, we start to ask questions, right? But we can do that on a, on a near-term basis. And the other thing I think, and, and I know this, is, this one is near and dear to your heart, is, um, is NPS, right? And, you know, as kind of a proxy metric for how satisfied are our clients and are they actually helping us build this business? And then there's probably another dozen that we look at beside that um, that are pretty SaaS technology specific. But, I mean, those are really the kind of big three. I think if you had to boil it down, I I could only look at three. Those are probably the three. It would tell me, are my clients healthy? Is our team healthy? And is our revenue? And is our business healthy? healthy, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And those, I think, also focus on employees, right? You're not – your revenue growth is a function of – sales and product and support and all the pieces internally that make things work. The reason that people pay us to, to use the product, right? So that's a, that's a very um, employee driven metric as well. So I think one of the things that you and I talk about is just making sure that the things we measure are actually connected to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that this is a people business and we're trying to connect people with a job and a company with a better person and an right. understanding of how to get better people yep. and, and continually improve that process. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, I want to, I want to ask a question about just generally your, your day, right? We talk, we've, we've just covered a lot. We've just covered a lot of ground, right? The sort of history from 1997 till now, the metrics that you look at, it's all a pretty diverse set of stuff that, because I know you, I know what your day is like and, and how busy you are. But I'd be interested to just have you talk to people about this. This is what a day in the life of of Greg is is like and how you make time for, for people in the business. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it, it depends. So I, I live in Colorado and I work in Dallas, which um, creates an interesting scheduling challenge on occasion. Um so sometimes my day starts or ends with a plane ride, or I have one stuck right in the middle of the afternoon, which as I do right after we're finishing today. Um, but, um, you know, I think I, I mean, I'm big, you sort of joked about this, I'm big on fitness. And I think, um, you know, starting, starting my day, you know, kind of the, getting a workout in the morning is about the most, it's probably the, I don't want to. It sounds funny to say that's probably the most important part of the day, but it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day. And if I if I screw that part up, like I did this morning, for instance, um, if I you know if I don't get that part right, the, the rest of the day doesn't seem to flow quite the same way. So, um, you know, from there, I really try to you know set aside time to just I think one of the one of the biggest challenges with what I do is um, there's often not enough time to just kind of think about really where I'm supposed to be focusing. Um, I know you and I are both big fans of the book, uh, The One Thing, um, which, you know, I'd certainly recommend for anybody to to read. And I try to practice that as much as I can, um, you know, for the first few hours of the day. And then, you know, from there, it's it's working with our sales team. It's working with our marketing team. It's working with our research team and our services team. And, um, you know, on just whatever projects we've got going on at that given moment. But I think, the, you know, that that I'm, I'm, I try to, I, I'm really big on trying to boil things down to some pretty, pretty definable, just a very small set of definable goals, both on an annual basis, on a quarterly basis. And, 
and then just trying to stay as as close to on track with those things and really i think the the big uh thing with um with with my job is trying to figure out what that right balance of being completely in the way or actually being helpful um and I don't always get that part right, but if I can, I don't uh, think anybody does. That's right. <laughs> Not just you. <laughs> yeah. So you know, really, it, but it's really about. I think it's it's getting the workout in, and then it's trying to set aside a few hours in the morning before the rest of the day kind of gets. Um, you know, the rest of the day will sort of be dictated by what I can accomplish in the morning, and that's that, that's the most important part for me. Well, you mentioned the the one thing, and, and just to me, there's a part in that book which is key to to that program in thinking about what's most important is almost less important, almost more important than even figuring out what the one thing is. It's setting time aside to work on that one thing. That's right. It's yeah. the time in the morning that you work out and have to think it's that whenever you plan that block of time, making sure you don't right. move that around. So you don't focus on that one thing. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, getting a workout in first in the morning actually allows me to figure out what that one thing is for the day where, you know, what can I do that day to advance my, you know, whatever it is that I'm working on that week or that month or, you know, whatever period of time that is. Right. And if I can, if I can use that time when I'm working out in the morning to kind of figure out what that one thing is for that day. Um, and then I can use that time block, you know, set aside to actually do it. Um, that's the, uh, you know, I think that, that, that to me sets the tone and, and not every day works perfectly like that. Right. I mean, a lot of them just kind of, they're, they get away from you from, uh, from the get go, but I really try to try to stick to that as much as I can. So there's a, there's a pattern emerging here in, in my notes, right? The, the, um, three big key metrics, the mm-hmm. one thing you try to do in the morning, this focusing on the one thing, it's this concept of, of, Maybe simplifying isn't the right word, but defining exactly what it is that needs to be done and, and working toward those goals, mm-hmm. not letting noise yeah. get in the way. I think one of the one of the big things that I've seen in my career and, and where um, where I've seen sort of people who have been enormously successful um, that I've worked with and people who have just constantly struggled is I think and, and I and I talk about this with my kids all the time, too. It's just it's. It's taking – it's actually putting time into strategy and planning. And I think mm-hmm. whether that means – you know, I, it's kind of like the old contractor model, right? That like the more time you spend taping the room before you paint it, the less time you're going to take in painting the room, right? And it's that, it's that same kind of thing. And I think that's one of the and, – and again, I'm not perfect at this by any stretch, but something I try to continue to remind myself, um, the more time I take – to figure out the next steps, the less time those steps are actually going to take me, right? And that's why, you know, it's it's three goals. It's the one thing. It's 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 really just trying to simplify it down to a level that, quite honestly, I can understand and manage. It's not that others can. It's that if when it gets too complicated and it gets kind of beyond that, I I, I lose stress. There's just too many pieces to to manage at that point. So let's talk a little bit about. Um things you're you're in your career you're really proud of and and things in your career that that haven't gone the way you intended them to go and sort of lessons from that so first let's talk about something that hasn't gone the way you intended it to go and what and what lesson you took from that well the first company you know i joked that i joked about um so you know like i said we started in 97 um we went from that 2500 laptop that i spent literally the life savings of my wife and i 
on. But I bet um, she was thrilled. She was particularly thrilled because we got married on December 27th of, ni- of uh, 1997. Uh, and I started that business like a couple days later. So she was now married to an unemployed guy who spent every last penny she had. Right. <laughs> which I think I'm sure impressed her parents as well. Um, 20 years later, we're still married. But um, so, you know, we went from that to really a, 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 a multi-million dollar business in a relatively short period of time. And it's not because we were, it's not because we were so smart. It's because the market was just powering everything, right? So the internet bubble was inflating. Things were really like, there was just so much money. I mean, you remember like this. I mean, if you remember that time, you know, pets.com and sort of all of this, you know, the internet, the Super Bowl commercials and all these companies, right? So, I mean, the, the bubble was inflating. Things were getting just massive. And you had this Y2K issue looming, right? It was so much money flowing into technology. It was unbelievable. So we literally went from this flat-footed startup where we had spent our life savings on it to really a multi-million dollar business in just a few years. Then we got to around 2000. And the bubble burst, right? And Y2K ended, and all the money flowed back out of technology, internet startups, in the same way it flowed in, right, which was really fast. And the business was gone. I mean, we, we effectively went from nothing to about $8 million in revenue to back to, you know, nothing again, except we had, you know, 50 employees or so at the time. Um, I was about uh, 27 I think something like that when that happened. Um, it was probably the most painful business experience I've ever had, but it was probably the best business experience I've ever had. And I think, um, you know, it's one of those things that clearly didn't work out the way that, that I wanted it to. Um, but no, nothing I've ever done has taught me more about, um, you know, what, what sustainable growth looks like um, in a business. And, how not to get that far over your skis, right? Which is which is really easy to do. Um, the market, I think, and there may be a little bit of this today, right? That's out there. I don't think anywhere. I don't think it's a bubble anywhere near what it was. But you know, the a a, a really fast and really powerfully growing market um, can make a lot of mediocre players look like geniuses, and it it sometimes can be hard to kind of flush the the difference out between uh, between the two. So it was an in, enormously powerful um, experience for me, one I'll certainly never forget, and one that, you know, has lessons that reverberate almost daily, you know, in, in different things that we do. Yeah, so you talked about lear- learning to understand what sustainable growth means. So, you know, what are, what are some of the things you do today to, you know, think about what sustainable growth means and try to accelerate outmatch into a, into a company that where we really are generating some sustainable growth. Yeah. I think, you know, the biggest thing is trying to figure out when to step on the gas and when to tap the brake. Right. And, um, and, and it's trying to really figure out, do I have this right? Is this, we talk internally about scalability all the time. Right. And we talk about it with our clients from their people strategy, right. Is, can you can you build a scalable strategy to hire at the volume that you need to hire for a company, right? If you're, you know, a major airline, can you hire, do you have a strategy in place that really allows you to hire, say, flight attendants at the pace that you need to hire them, but also at the quality that you need to hire them? Or does it all break down? Because very often you find one side breaks down or the other. You're not getting enough people or you're just getting not the right people, Right. So finding that balance is a really hard thing. 
And it's the same thing within a company, right? So, you know, being able to understand when do I, when do I really step on the gas because we're seeing signs of something really starting to break. Um, seems like we've figured out, you know, one piece of the business. So let's really step on the brakes or, but being able to be patient enough to say, eh, I don't, I don't think we have the balance right yet, right? I don't think we've got this thing figured out. Let's go a little slower. Let's keep testing. Let's keep collecting data um, until we really feel like we've got something that scales, whether that's a marketing campaign or it's a, it's our sales efforts or it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's our services model or implementations model or something like that to kind of keep the breakdown a little bit until you kind of figure it out and then immediately step on the gas. And I think that's, that's always a really hard balance, but it's one that if you don't get right, you can really find yourself um, spending a whole lot of money on stuff that doesn't work. So you, you mentioned sales and you mentioned marketing there, and you did talk a little bit about the human capital strategy, but I would imagine that's one of the reasons that the HR tech industry is growing too, right? So you said earlier, you said the the executive suite is is demanding more metrics from a human capital perspective. This, do I step on the gas? Do I tap the brake? Is yeah. really a human capital issue as mm-hmm. well. Absolutely. It's technology powering that. The yeah. ability to make those decisions. Sure. Yeah. As companies as companies grow, right, the ability to the ability to drive talent into the organization becomes, you know, even more strategic than it already was, and not losing your people once you have them, right? I, that is really pushing heavily on the on the space today. That's why you see a lot of sourcing companies really cropping up because company, you know, our clients are our clients and every other company is having trouble just identifying people, right? I mean, it's, which is ironic. When I first started my career in recruiting, I mean, everything was like in your own personal Rolodex, right? Today, really, any company theoretically has access to anybody, but being able to identify that right talent and engage that right talent early in the process is really hard. You know, it's why you see assessments really growing, right? Because once you get that person in, you really want to be able to identify very quickly as a high potential candidate or low potential candidate, but all of those things are really focused on, you know, they're powered by the growth of, an, of, the, of the company. When companies are hiring, it's a great time for HR tech. Great. All right, I think we have time for, for two more questions. So we talked about the book, The One Thing. Uh, what, what are well, two of your other top favorite books? Um, I would say my favorite other business book um, – would be uh, the five dysfunctions of a team. Um, so it's Pat Lanchoni. And um, it's just a fantastic model for identifying what a high-performing team looks like. Um, it's very simple. I love Pat's books because I can read them on a two-hour plane ride. Right. Um, because they tell, but, you know, if you haven't read Lanchoni's books, I mean, they're told as parables. Right. They're They're fictional stories, but... Um, very, very fast reads, uh, but enormously powerful. Um, and five dysfunctions of team is incredible. Um, I think on the personal side, it was funny. I've read this book probably six times and I started reading again this weekend. It was just like laying there, which is, uh, which is man's search for meaning, which is a, that's a great, yeah, which is another, uh, another incredible, um, story. So that's one I just, I don't, there's not a lot of books where I just continue to go back to them and read them and read them again. And sometimes just, you know, reading a chapter or a few pages, um, but uh, but that's a that's an incredible incredible book. If, again, for anybody who's not familiar with it, it's about a Nazi uh, concentration camp survivor who basically got us got himself through 
um, the concentration camp by trying to learn everything he could about what was happening to him so he could tell the story. So the story is about him preparing to tell the story, which is just enormously powerful, right? It's, it's just a, it's an amazing, amazing book. Yeah. I, um, I actually bought that in an airport bookstore. Mm -hmm. It tells you a little bit about how popular that book is in general and how widespread it is. Um, and it is, it's a fantastic read. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's one that it's one that every kid, I think, you know, like teens and, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, certainly anything but a kid's book, but I mean, it's, uh, but it's, it's just one that, you know, it's every, 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 Everybody should read it once because it has that kind of impact on your life. I also think that about five dysfunctions of a team. Actually, it's yeah, <laughs> it, it can be that powerful and important. And I, you know, I don't know if it's a if it's a Lencioni concept or if it's a agile software methodology concept, but this this notion of doing a, a daily stand up with your with your team, right? Right. It's it's a it's short. It's just a touch base. Um, that that's one of the most powerful concepts I think. Um, that that Lencioni talks about. It's mm-hmm. a great. I know it's a great touch point for our team as we go through the week too. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So one time for one more question. So, what advice would you give to someone starting their career uh, in in human capital? Um, if you are, so I'm assuming we're talking about on the on the company side, right? Somebody who wants to make a career in HR. That's right. Um, I I think. Being able to get a a an education, know what a balance sheet is, right? Know what an income statement is. Take some basic financial, even if you're long out of college, take some online classes. Really learn what um, what the mechanics of a, of a business are on an operational financial level. And I think one of the things that separates, in my view extraordinary HR executives from not, right, Right. would be their ability to really tie the impact that their talent has to an organization. What are the things that I'm doing? I mean, all of this stuff, it's it's all very altruistic. And I think what gravitates people into HR is because it, it really is a feel-good business, right? It really is about people, and it's about helping people. And all of that is fantastic. Um, and, and we shouldn't lose that. But at the same time, you want to be able to quantify the impact that you're having or your programs are having on those real, I would say, top line, even more than bottom line performance of a company. How... Do the programs I'm putting in place help drive revenue for my business? As a CEO, as an investor in other companies, as a board member in other companies, I want to understand how we're going to grow. And I want to understand through that growth, how is my ability, our ability as an organization to recruit more effectively? retain our talent more effectively, to engage that talent more effectively, how, what impact is that really having? So I, I think the biggest advice I would have um, would be take some ba- learn some basic financial literacy around a company. There's online classes you can take. There's, um, I think the other thing is around data uh, and data science, right? If you don't have that skill set today, learn basic data visualization and data analysis. Um, 
because I, I, one of the things we see all the time is in, in, w- with what we do and talking to other HR technology executives, one, thing, one of the common things we hear all the time is like, you know, it's how, how do you build a business case for what you want to try to do, right? And for investments that you want to make in your people, because these are good things, but we can't just simply rely on the intrinsic value. We've got to be able to build the business case. And I think all of those things through data, through data visualization, through basic financial literacy, corporate financial literacy, I think really would really will help that. Great. Yeah, I, that that. And it's what we were talking a little bit about before. It's sort of a maturation process of of the human capital function, right? Making sure that it's not only connected with the financial foundation of the business, but it is one of the key drivers of growth. That's right. And we talk to a lot of our clients who are trying to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. How does how do how does my talent? I know my talent helps this business grow. How do I show people that? How do I replicate that? And how do I really use that as a tool for growth? That's right. That's, That's right. Great. Thanks. Thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I know you're hopping on a plane, so I really appreciate I appreciate the time. And um, I also want to thank our our production crew for today. We've got Charles Summers in the booth, and we had Matt Rogers here <laughs> troubleshooting the uh, the microphones and computers. So thanks to those guys. Uh, until next time, this is Jason Ferrara from Outmatch. Looking forward to having you join us for the next Talent Playbook podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.